Today on Futures in Biotech, Dr. Tommy Nielsen talks about the test run, the technology that will transition us into the next era of medicine. The special guest host, subject matter expert, Dr. Mark Gerstein. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Futures in Biotech is provided by CashFly at CashFly.com. This is Futures in Biotech 79. This episode of Futures in Biotech is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus get DVDs by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to Netflix.com slash twit. I believe that biotech is the next frontier. Probably the greatest intellectual revolution that's ever taken place uh, in man's history. DNA is the code for life. We're actually beginning to understand how life works, which I think is something that's mind-blowing in and of itself. There was uh, going to be a genetic component to aging. How long was there to be the extension? About 30, 40% for humans, that would be equate to something like 20 to 30 years. How close are we to actually having a therapeutic? Ballpark, 10 years. It's potentially one of the things that will end up rocking the world the same way that uh, people said, oh, the sun's the center of the universe, oh, this and that and everything. And now here's somebody who can come out and say, hey, look, here's how we compare it to our closest evolutionary relative. Welcome to Futures in Biotech. I'm Mark Pelsier. Today, we are very fortunate to have two of the top guys in their field, uh, and that is the field of proteomics, of bioinformatics. Um, our guest is a Dr. Tommy Nielsen. He's a professor in the Department of Medicine at McGill University and Canada Research Chair in Proteomics and Systems Medicine. Uh, he was recently on Futures in Biotech with John Bergeron. They uh, did a show together, and they really set a case that it's time to do proteomics uh, to revolutionize modern medicine. We're really at a transition uh, between eras of medicine. One where we make guesses based on uh, our parents' history to one where we have an, an, a, a, a molecular anatomy down to the atom of who we are and our disease states. Um, and to help out with the uh, interview, I brought on a subject matter expert. Uh, let me warn you that this, this show is going to be pretty hardcore biotech and I don't think we should you know, be scared away from it, but we should embrace it and try and get it even deeper. So to do so, we brought Mark Gerstein. Uh, he's the Albert L. Williams Professor of Biomedical Informatics. He's a professor of molecular biophysics and biochemistry and of computer science at Yale University. Uh, welcome, guys. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so we've got a little bit of a lag, a little Skype lag, um, and feel free to interject anytime. Uh, we're, we're in Canada, we're in the East Coast, and I'm in the Midwest, and we're pipe, piping through Petaluma, California. So um, while we're not trying to interrupt, we, it's definitely good to interject. And especially when the topic is going to be um, uh, proteomics. And, and proteomics, l let me just uh, sort of put a, a, a little preamble here. If we can understand the, the human anatomy down to the atom, and you can compare a diseased kidney from a non-diseased kidney, a cancer kidney with a non-cancer kidney, and you can find those biomarkers very, very early. Um, you basically have a tricorder. If you had a tricorder that could do that, you, know, you could do personalized uh, 
uh, medicine, does, uh, the, which drugs would work best for that exact disease state. Um, and there was a paper that was written, and I'm, I'm going to put the paper up here, uh, right here. Here's the title. This is a paper authored, first author was Alex, Alexander Bell, who I was, I, he worked with them a little bit with the, in John Bergeron's lab. Um, and uh, Tommy was an author on the paper with John Bergeron as well. And they, what they did is um, they sent out test samples of proteins to 27 labs. And I will stop there. It's uh, the, the, paper, the, the title of the paper is a HUPO test sample reveals common problems in mass spectrometry based proteomics. So I will ask you the first question. How, well, let's, let's just make it a little lighter. Uh, Tommy, how would you like to present this? And so, where does so, it stand today? Uh, to go back to your uh, introduction, which I think is, is, uh, is uh, uh, both uh, futuristic in a, in, uh, in a sense, but also uh, I think it depicts quite where we want to be in, in, uh, in 10 years. Uh, to, you, you talk about the tricorder to understand the, the, the human uh, anatomy down to the atom. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's for, for the purpose of uh, uh, curing disease. But I just want to make a distinction on, or give you an idea on how we, how we approach this. Because you, uh, up until recently, have tried to find drugs that work, uh, again, uh, that you can apply in disease context uh, that work in a general population. But what you want to do, and using genomics, uh, proteomics, and, and, and other omics techniques, is to use this to enhance the phenotyping of, or of, a, of, a, of a patient. So imagine the doctor, uh, the, the, the patient, and instead of just uh, relying on blood sample, urine sample, uh, imaging techniques, you could now bring the full force of the the uh, DNA sequencing, deep DNA sequencing, transcriptomics and proteomics and metabolomics to enhance the picture of that particular patient. And by doing that, the doctor is going to be much better uh, uh, positioned to make a, a, a informed decision about your treatment and also the, the prognostics, the follow-up, et cetera, that, that comes uh, afterward. So, so I think this is a very exciting time uh, that we are in where we can see the, the, how these technologies uh, can, can, uh, can be applied. But I also then want to be uh, cautious uh, and this is why I, I, I suggested this, uh, this uh, test sample uh, paper, because that really uh, uh, sets a, a, uh, a sort of benchmark in the field where we are today, because uh, uh, one should temper enthusiasm with, with reality and uh, 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 having the long-term objective clear. It's fantastic. It's, it's exciting. But uh, we have a lot of work in front of us to, to, uh, to, uh, to get there. So, so uh, uh, before I dwell into the uh, the aspects of of, uh, of the test sample uh, study here, uh, I, I, I uh, return back to you. Yeah. So I think one thing I know that it might be we've done a couple of shows uh, with uh, you and, and John Bergeron, and then we did a show with um, Rudy Abersold, um, you know, three giants in the field, and uh, but. 
it'd be good right here to sort of revisit what exactly is mass spectrometry so that people can uh, see how this potentially could be used in diagnostics and visualize it. Um, yeah. And maybe if you could give us a little a brief introduction to that, and then we can, it'll set the stage. Yeah, so, so uh, the, the distinction, I think it's most people, they know it. it's easy to understand the, the uh, our, uh, how to say, gene, uh, uh, genetic makeup. We have chromosomes in every nucleus, uh, in, in every cell in the body. And this encodes uh, the proteins that are within the cell. So with, in uh, genomics, you can sequence the DNA and you can look for differences between uh, uh, different individuals. And they try to make links to disease. And this is exactly how the genomics uh, field is uh, uh, advancing. Now, uh, most drugs uh, and treatments, they are not directed against genes, they're directed against the gene products. Uh, the proteins. And uh, there is uh, currently no real good correlation between the, uh, uh, the expression of the genes, that you, as you can measure on an mRNA level, uh, and the protein makeup of the cell. They have a vastly different uh, uh, turnover and so forth. So uh, really uh, what people are trying to, to, uh, to get to is to be able to determine the protein profile of a cell or, or a subpart of a cell. And the way we do that uh, uh, technically is to uh, uh, have a, a protein sample that can be a blood sample, serum sample, plasma sample. It can be a tissue uh, extract. It can be part of a cell like a, an organelle or enriched fraction of, of uh, something that you have brought down with an antibody, etc. And now you want to determine the protein composition of that. So the first thing you do is to, uh, and this is not uh, exclusively one can, but the most common approach is to uh, cut up the uh, proteins into peptides using a, uh, a proteinase uh, uh, trypsin. And then you will uh, have these uh, peptides going into the mass spec. And the mass spec is a very sensitive instrument can determine the uh, the mass with very very high accuracy of these peptides that come in and you can also uh, collide these peptides and fragment them further into down to uh, smaller fragments so that you can do what is literally boils down to um, the sequencing directly in the machine of these peptides but the most well, let common me interject just yeah. a, a quick sec can you uh, move your camera down uh, just a yeah. bit yeah, editor sure. Uh, let's uh, just mark this spot even a little bit more, even a little bit more so that the lower third is, is your chin is not touching the lower third. Keep, like just this? pull your screen towards you. Keep going. Keep going. Yep. Okay. Nice. It's better. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. Good. So, is that okay? So, uh, Perfect. Continue. Right. I was just asking our engineer. All right. Cool. Uh, if that was good, if there was a good angle. So that's better. Uh, so you were saying that you then you have your, your peptides going to the mass spec after trypsinization. Yep. Yeah. And then, and, uh, and then, so the mass spectrometer is an extremely uh, uh, accurate instrument. So we can uh, determine the uh, molecular weight of these peptides or any other uh, compounds that you put in, uh, for that matter. And by uh, determining the molecular weight of the peptide, you can then go in into a database and search where you uh, for uh, 
uh, in silico the right peptides of the uh, corresponding molecular weight. And in, in this way, you can then identify uh, uh, the protein from where these peptides have been derived. So, How so, precise uh, a weight, molecular weight, can you get down, uh, down to an atom? No, well, you could get down to a thousand ppm, uh, etc. Uh, and it's... Uh, uh, no, no, I meant not as an atom, but uh, what's the smallest thing it can measure? Uh, not in terms of quantity, but say you had a lot think, of uh, hydrogen. Could you measure a lot of hydrogen? Or what's the so, cutoff? No, so, so, so we go down to uh, uh, below femtomol uh, in concentration. Of, uh, of the peptides. And uh, uh, then you have, depending on the instrument, uh, the mass accuracy uh, will, will be, uh, uh, I think, around a, a couple, of, uh, around a thousand ppm. So, so this, this, is, this is Mark. I just wanted to ch chime in for a second. So I, I'm very interested in this process, you know, that you used to um, identify things. And I'm just curious, can you think about the process um, without a database search? I mean, can you just imagine sending uh, using the mass spectrometer and just reading out the proteins without doing that database search? Is, is there any way to think about that? Uh, sure, but uh, you could uh, uh, you could literally uh, collide the peptides in, that, in such a way that you can get from that the the uh, the, uh, uh, the peptide sequence. Uh, before the the uh, the modern approaches we used to do something called Edman degradation, and that was literally peptide sequencing. But every peptide sequence that you derive, you have to correlate to that to, to, to something. Uh, and that what you correlate to is, is uh, a protein or predicted uh, uh, protein coding sequence. So unless you had that, you would basically have something that you would be uh, completely in the dark with. So, so you have to, at some point or another, go back to uh, a, a database uh, uh, of, of predicted uh, uh, sequences. So mm. if you chew up that protein and you take this one protein, it's hemoglobin. Let's use that as an example. Because mm -hmm. you're doing a red blood, uh, uh, a blood, a blood sample, you've got mm -hmm. hemoglobin. You can't just throw the hemoglobin into the mass spec. Uh, you, you digest it into little pieces. And those little pieces are, we know because of the human genome, you know, certain sequences of amino acids. You got like a string of amino acids that connect to another string of amino acids that forms the full protein. You've digested into its subparts. And so you might have a five amino acids chain, a 10 amino acid chain. And based on the sequence that we have from the genome, you can make a prediction as to the exact molecular weight. Mm -hmm. And then the mass spec has a readout and you try to correlate your predicted molecular weights of hemoglobin to the yes. actual detected. Yes. That makes sense? Oh, okay. So yes. I got it right. So, yeah, so, so this is Mark. I, I think that um, I, I'm quite interested in that, but I'm just curious, what if there's something that, you know, we haven't identified in the genome or that's producing a protein? Is it possible somehow to see that in the, in the mass spec, or is that just sort of some sort of peak that you can't account for or something? Uh, so in, in uh, I guess, in 99.999% of the cases, these peaks will not be uh, looked at. Uh, but uh, the, uh, uh, in, the, in the context of the proposal for the Human Proteome Project, uh, and based on the uh, outcome of the uh, uh, sequencing of the human genome, we now know that there are 20,300 
predicted open reading frames. So, so uh, with that, uh, I think we, we are going to see less and less loss of, uh, of peaks that we don't, uh, uh, that we are not able to assign. But at the same time, you have to realize that we have a lot of uh, post-translational modifications uh, that we can't predict. Uh, and uh, we also have uh, uh, variances between individuals, uh, so-called uh, SNPs. So these are single, single nucleotide polymorphisms, which then uh, can translate into uh, changes in the amino acid sequence. So, so sometimes you're going to be uh, uh, thrown, thrown off the mark by, by these type of uh, variances. So, so it's not an absolute uh, in any way uh, method. Oh, okay, no, I was just curious to, to ask those. I, I have some more on that, but I'll let you keep, keep going. Mm -hmm. and... So, you so, know, so... I'm, but I'm still amazed. I'm still amazed at here. I, I'm thinking just from the clinical side, you've got, um, you know, you can do tests, you can push the liver, look for a reflex, you know, <laughs> look for a breathing <laughs> response. You can listen to a heartbeat. You can take some tissue out and look under a microscope. You know, now it's going, medicine's going to the next level. I mean, you can sequence the DNA and make a prediction as to the likelihood of uh, the onset of cancer. But what if you could actually see the atoms in the human body? And uh, this is pretty much what it does. I mean, we're made out mostly of proteins, right? proteins, lipid sugars, all which can be, uh, you know, quantified or, or potentially quantified on mass spec. And so this, this I, I really have to, you know, you know, take a step back from 37,000 feet here. This could be, this will change. Uh, how we're diagnosed, and uh, I, I've been going to the ER for gallbladder issues, and uh, you know they're doing their blood tests, and I've got like six results, right? And give you an idea of what's going on. But man, would it be neat? <laughs> Fortunately, uh, it's been been out. Anyway, go ahead. But the, the technology is there. It's it's a uh, it's how we apply the technology, uh, but you have to be also uh, uh, realistic in the sense that if you take a physician today uh, working in a hospital and seeing a patient, uh, he or she base uh, their uh, decisions on, uh, I think now, today, it's 90% based on uh, laboratory uh, tests and, and imaging and so on. Uh, and uh, would, uh, so that means that every physician will have to have some deep uh, knowledge or or say insight into, or at least appreciate the technologies uh, from where you derive these data. And if you now bring in genomics, it, it's going to increase that. Uh, 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 it's going to make the life for the physician uh, more difficult unless we can build up a very robust support structure that makes the interpretation of these data uh, uh, easy for the physician. So it's not just the technology uh, uh, challenge. Uh, it's also a translation challenge on how you can translate information to a uh, physician in such a way that she can make uh, uh, the right decisions. So, so there's a huge uh, uh, challenge in the bioinformatics, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, also a huge challenge in, in how to, to integrate data from different levels and then you come into the realms of systems approaches etc so so uh, proteomics as such very powerful 
but uh, we need to combine this with, with other type of uh, uh, fields also, in particular with bioinformatics. Would you say that the Human Genome Project, you know, it's, it's real benefit of having done it, it's, it's real raison d'etre, as you might say, is to enable proteomics, right? <laughs> you know, genomics was good. It was, it was, you, you could watch genes be turned on, turned off with gene chips, but really as laying the groundwork for proteomics, is it, or am I going too far to say that? And maybe Mark will get mad. Well, actually, this, this is this is Mark. I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't get mad there. But one thing that I think is interesting to think about, and this was why I was asking the questions earlier, is that I think people know that only a small fraction of the human genome, only about maybe a percent or two, is uh, devoted to coding region, and and there's a really really large fraction of the genome that's not thought to code for proteins. And on the other hand, a lot of it's transcribed, and there's a very big debate about. Uh, the degree to which that's creating RNAs or the degree to which maybe there's some proteins or some translated products that we haven't found out, out, out there before. And so I'm, I was very curious about the ability of proteomics to try to uh, find things that, um, uh, you know, we hadn't already mapped already in terms of the genome. So, so I want to give you uh, some sort of a sense on what can be done. I mean, the more we uh, can map uh, say, uh, I mean, when you do mass spectrometry, the us usual approach is to do something called LC-MSMS. So, uh, uh, so the peptides are then separated by a liquid chromatography. They enter the mass, spe mass spectrometer, and you do what is called a parental scan. And then you get the peptides as they come in, and you get the uh, flight of time, and you get the the, uh, the charge, and and you can determine the mass of the peptide. Now. As we, uh, but the same, the, the peptide from the same protein, the same peptide is going to have the same behavior from time to time. Uh, so the next time you do it, the peptide is going to be, behave exactly the same. So you're going to be able to train your mass spectrometer, uh, not the mass spectrometrist, but the mass spectrometer, to to uh, to select those peptides that are of interest, and 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 uh, you select on the peptides for further fragmentation, and that further fragmentation then gives you the composition of that peptide in much more detail. So let's say now that we 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 ignore all, everything that is there that we already know with high certainty the identity of 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 the peptides. So now we can go in and look at these interesting ones that uh, are not how do you say coming out that easily and then we can select those and we can fragment them and we can go deeper and then we can determine the composition of those peptides and what protein uh, uh, these uh, correspond to so yes uh, uh, it is possible to do that type of exploration uh, uh, with mass spectrometry i hope this isn't too technical but I'm, I, I think it's kind of an interesting question <clears throat> when people look at um the uh, transcriptome. So, so the the before you get to the uh, proteome or looking at the proteins, people often look at the level that the genes are expressed. And, and as you pointed out, that there's not that much correlation sometimes between the levels of gene expression and the amount of proteins. But people often look at the uh, transcriptome. One of the things they do when they look at this is they sequence it, and often with this um, next generation sequencing, and they figure out when they sequence it, what fraction of it they can kind of map back onto the genome. And one thing people talk a lot about is the fraction that they can get mapped and the fraction that doesn't map. And then they spend a lot of time thinking about 
well, the fraction that doesn't map, what, what, what do we make of it? Is, it? is it real? Is it an error? And so forth. And I'm wondering if, um, is there some statistic they have in uh, proteomics that gets a sense of like, when you look at the entire protein repertoire in a cell, what fraction, you know, we can kind of account for and what fraction is, you know, we don't really exactly know what's going on? So for that, I can give you, I don't, I, I can't give you an absolute number because it hasn't been uh, determined, but I can give you a sense. Uh, so about, if, so most people uh, in the field of proteomics doing mass spectrometry, they will deposit their data into uh, public databases. And uh, uh, there has been one study, it hasn't been published yet, but it's quite telling. So about 50% of all uh, mass spectrometry uh, data is against 86 proteins. And uh, uh, now you go up to uh, about 90% of the spectra that are in the databases are about to about 2,000 proteins. Ah, and, then, and, and then about 95% uh, of the spectra uh, are against uh, 6,000 proteins. And uh, then it, then it uh, 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 it doesn't go higher than that. So, so you can then get a sense of, uh, okay, uh, this is the, the, where we are in terms of the technology, etc. because uh, it's easy to see the abundant proteins, etc. Uh, maybe we have looked at easy tissues. Uh, we haven't looked everywhere in the body for, for these proteins. But I would say about uh, more than half of all the proteins uh, that you would predict has not been seen uh, by mass spectrometry. And, mm. uh, and, and, and uh, then if you look in the whole field, not just in, in, uh, in proteomics, but uh, taking everything else that has been done for the last 100 years, we're still gonna be in the dark uh, for, uh, I think at least 40% of, of, of all proteins have never been seen. Uh, I mean, predicted proteins have never been seen. And, and uh, there's only a scant uh, uh, knowledge about the majority of the proteins that, uh, that have been seen. So we're really uh, at, at the very beginning of understanding uh, the, the, the biology behind uh, the, the, uh, the proteins. And we have to go in a systematic way to, to, uh, to identify the, uh, the proteins, uh, to, to, to see them either by mass spectrometry or by antibody or whatever, whatever methodology you, you, can, uh, you can apply. Mm, no, no, that's, that's very interesting. I mean, one, one thing that I, I, I think is particularly, um, I'm particularly keen on is, uh, you know, when they're annotating the, um, the, the genome, you know, they, they, they certainly look at um, the transcripts and what they call it RNA-seq and so forth, or RNA sequencing. Um, and, you know, there's, there's some people, and maybe, maybe you're one of them, who are, you know, then connecting these um, transcripts up with um, uh, protein identifications and kind of feeding that back to the people who are, um, you know, cre creating gene structures on the genome. And, you know, I think that's, I'm, I'm quite involved in this latter process, and so I'm very interested in how the proteomics kind of fits into into this whole thing. So, so, uh, so with the paper that uh, we have in front of us, uh, the the test sample study, uh, the real wake up call, uh, uh, the the outcome of that study was that 
uh, the the, wait, uh, the wait, databases wait, 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 that wait, wait, wait. are. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> let's let's do a cliffhanger. Sorry, maybe that's the worst way to present a cliffhanger. Um, so, sorry, Tony. <laughs> I gotta get Leo is so good at this. Let's let's talk about the paper after our. We have to do a quick spot for Netflix, and then we'll come back and talk about the outcome of the paper, okay. which is really really cool because it, sure. it sets the, the groundwork for transitioning out of the biotech labs into the hospitals. And um, it, it's really neat. By the way, here's a quick spectra. Uh, you get these sharp, sharp peaks. What we have, it's pretty hard to see. The graphic is pretty lousy but that I have. But you, you, we're looking at atomic masses. I mean, down to uh, how, what's the final? I can't end? see. Oh, yeah. It's kind of well, looking at a traditional, I mean, we're, we're down to uh, one proton in its ability to detect two different peptides by a distance, by a weight difference of one proton. About any anyhow, so um, yeah, let's 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 get this uh, spot done because uh, you know this is supported by Netflix, and um, so I'd like to thank uh, Netflix for sponsoring uh, Futures in Biotech. Uh, they deliver movies directly to your home, and that saves you time, money, and hassle. You can watch uh, instantly watch thousands of TV episodes and movies. They're streamed directly to your PC or Mac. Or can be streamed to your TV via Netflix-ready devices, including the Xbox 360, PS3, Nintendo Wii. Um, I are, at our house, we use the Roku box in our downstairs TV. We use the Wii upstairs. We have an Apple TV, uh, iPad, laptops, iPhones, iPods. Everybody has Netflix in our house set up on their device. So you can, you can absolutely watch it any which way you want. Uh, we also get DVDs, and they, they send you DVDs by mail in about one business day. Uh, watch as many movies as you want, anytime you want. Uh, there's never any late fees or due dates. Um, my pick of the week, by the way, do you guys watch uh, Netflix at all? Do you, I mean, do you have time? <laughs> yeah, no, I do. I have Netflix. This is Mark. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Um, so we were supposed to pick, uh, uh, do a Netflix pick, and I picked uh, Battlestar Galactica. I'm a huge sci-fi fan, and this is uh, created by Glenn A. Larson. It's a 2004 to 2009 series. They did four entire seasons, um, there's partial seasons as well that are added in, like I think there's season 3.5 and 4, uh, 3, 3.5 and 4. They did 75 episodes, so for two solid months, I watched nothing on TV but Battlestar Galactica. I missed out on all the main shows, excluded everything. I'm catching up on The Office now, but so they have it up on their instant uh, view. So you can set up an instant queue and, and just Whatever you want, on demand, go and watch Battlestar Galactica. So if you want to uh, watch Battlestar Galactica or choose from any of the thousands of TV episodes or movies, uh, you can when you register for a free trial membership. You go to netflix.com forward slash twit. Um, do you have a favorite uh, movie that's, that's on Netflix, Mark? Oh, me? A favorite movie? Hmm. Well, I saw this one called... Um babies recently it was a very uh it was all about i think it's called babies it was all about babies in different countries <laughs> very good movie. <laughs> cool. is, is netflix come to canada yet tommy sorry not yet has, of course yeah it has. Uh, i don't know if this movie is on netflix it's uh it's the uh uh progenitor of most sci-fi movies uh this is called forbidden planet and uh, that's the uh, one I have as a as a favorite because it really predates every every sci-fi movie, and it's with it's a cool. Canadian uh, uh, as a as a lead character, uh, Leslie uh, Nielsen, who is. Uh, uh, oh, he's great! He's great. Yep. Yeah. So so, uh, but he he's not funny in that movie. He's very serious. 
<laughs> let me uh, let me search it. What, what's the name of the movie? Forbidden Planet. Yeah, it's there. Okay. Uh, let me see. Is it on instant? I'm not sure it's on instant. Oh no, but you can get the DVD. Forbidden Planet. Uh, it's a Pulp Fiction sci-fi classic. Forbidden Planet stars Nesley Nielsen as a heroic starship captain. All right. Well, I'm gonna put it on my queue. So they're going to send it to my house. That's really cool. Hey, I'm glad it's up in Canada because it, it'll. Uh, I, I travel to Canada when I go to my in-laws, and it's often, uh, you know, fun to when you're kind of on pseudo vacation to really get into it. So <laughs> and I'm done with the Battlestar Galactica series. So I, I'm, I'm moving on. Canada so, is not exactly as as it is, as it is depicted in South Park. <laughs> right. Or, yeah. So this, this is Mark. One thing that is worthwhile to mention about Netflix um, is uh, I'm not so much a watcher of it, but you know, Netflix has made a tremendous impact on the machine learning community. And we talk about it all the time uh, because they have this thing called the Netflix challenge, which we really uh, think is quite amazing. I don't know if you've heard about this, but it's a challenge that um, Netflix put out to um, all the people who do computer prediction algorithms to try to essentially predict uh, who would watch what uh, movie, and uh, they put a million dollar prize out for it. And it's been it's been quite I, I think it's fair to say quite inspirational for a lot of people. Wow! Did, do you have a submission? Did you? Uh, I mean, well, it's, I think one person point. in my lab did did submit. We certainly didn't win, but we 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 def and we certainly watched the um, competition. You, there's websites where you can watch the um, different uh, teams uh, involved, and uh, it, it it made a very serious impact on the. Um, the, I would say the machine learning community. Let me just say, Mark, there's another way to do it, and we are in the United States. Um, you give me a call, we'll form a corporation, we'll uh, 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 patent the algorithm, and we'll approach Netflix for a licensing deal. Okay. <laughs> and you're, you guys get the entire ownership of the company. I'll help you out that way. And you can make more than a million dollars if you have a great algorithm to help predict what people are watching. Okay. Uh, so give me a shout. We'll <laughs> get it financed. Uh, you're in New Haven. There's a lot of great uh, VCs that would love that opportunity to have some of your insights into algorithms as well. So <laughs> we'll talk after the show. Uh, be sure to sign up for your free trial at netflix.com forward slash twit. We thank Netflix for the support of twit and futures in biotech. <laughs> hope I, I hope I didn't offend you though, because I mean, it, it, I, I can understand how there's being a pioneer and then there's, you know, doing a company and you, you've, you've had a great contribution as a pioneer in the field of bioinformatics. Oh, no, no, I think that was a, I think it was a great idea. Actually, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people thought about how they could get that million dollars or something. <laughs> so I think it's, that's a creative way to do it. Yeah, but you can, oh man, if you can predict how people are going to behave, I mean, they've got a great suggestion, you know, we, suggestions for you, movies to suggest, which are great. And, but if you can do an even better job, it's worth more than a million dollars to Netflix. It, I think they're 20% of uh, primetime TV watching now. Wow. Um, <laughs> well, but I digress. Let's, let's get back to, you know, I, I guess changing modern medicine and uh, transitioning from microscopy, from, you know, blood tests that are based on antibody recognition to getting down to the atomic level. Um, uh, Tommy, you were talking about the 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 Hupo test sample study um, mm -hmm. and its outcomes. So this is a 2009 paper where they sent out test samples to see how effective a mass spec would be and to debunk the yeah. sort of the way. So 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 uh, to give you a little bit of a backdrop, uh, the uh, 
field of uh, mass spectrometry-based uh, proteomics has uh, had its uh, sort of moments of, where you have had a lot of claim to fame and, and uh, that then has uh, fallen uh, flat, so flat on its face. So uh, there has been then a lot of uh, uh, discussions, a lot of, uh, uh, yeah, there have been a lot of promises and very little delivered at the end of the day in terms of biomarkers and, and, and value for the community. And uh, the uh, European Commission in uh, 2006, I think it was, uh, really asked HUPO and the field of proteomics to come up with uh, uh, ways to, to, uh, to move forward, to, to, to standardize the field, to set basically standards uh, and to, uh, to prove that the uh, uh, technology on the field could, could, uh, could deliver. And uh, uh, so the uh, one part of that process has been then to conduct different type of test sample studies. Uh, and uh, this has been done, uh, this one is, was done through HUPO. Uh, there has been other test sample studies done by the ABRF and, and uh, also some other uh, private uh, uh, or individual initiatives that have been uh, carried out. But this and one, HUPO is the Human Proteome Organization. Uh, yes, uh, so that's the equivalent of the Hugo, which uh, is uh, is behind the uh, Human Genome. So, so uh, the uh, so so this was then uh, a a a a request, and uh, we uh, uh, then went forward to to uh, to think. Okay, how can we make a test sample? Uh, in such a way that uh, it, it is uh, uh, pure proteins in there, because one of the uh, objections in, in the past and one of the problems in the past has been, yes, there's been test samples sent around, but then people find all sorts of things in there. And uh, uh, so, so then they come back and say, well, this is not really fair. You're asking me to identify proteins, but you're sending me a lot of rubbish. So a humongous effort uh, was uh, went in uh, to uh, to actually uh, ensure that the proteins that were contained within this test sample uh, were uh, what they was supposed to be. So they were purified uh, extensively. And uh, if you uh, happen to be able to go into Nature Methods supplementary uh, material, I think there are about uh, more than 50 pages documenting the purification and characterization of each one of these uh, uh, 20 proteins that uh, went in and how they were selected and, and, and so on. So and, you guys are uh, really setting up the framework, not for a looking for a needle in a haystack, but here's the haystack, guys. Can you see yes. it? Right. Yes. Yes. This is this is a a, a famous uh, uh, I would say analogy is that there is an elephant in the room and no one is seeing the elephant. Right. So so uh, it, it, it's it's wow. it's like that. So so, but we wanted to make sure that you no one was going to come back and say this sample is full of rubbish. Uh, so uh, so. Um, uh, so these 20 proteins were then painstakingly uh, purified and uh, put in equimolar amounts. These are all human proteins, equimolar amounts, into one test sample. And, one, and so the first task was then to identify these 20 proteins. 
and uh, uh, then uh, the proteins had been uh, chosen in, in such a way that each protein had a peptide which had a molecular weight of 1250 Dalton. So the task number two was to identify that peptide and show that you could select that peptide and, and, and identify it in each one of these 20 proteins. Now, uh, these, uh, these uh, test samples were then sent out to uh, uh, 27 uh, participants, uh, mostly academic uh, labs, and also uh, a couple of uh, uh, mass spectrometry vendors that wanted to participate. And uh, the uh, the result was was uh, was uh, awful. Uh, seven labs uh, managed to identify uh, the twenty uh, peptides, uh, the, the the twenty proteins, and the rest they failed in some way or another. And uh, uh, only one lab, one lab out of the twenty seven, could uh, complete task number two to identify the twelve fifty peptide. So that's so not, that's not encouraging. This was this was a catastrophe. So so of course when you when you when you do something like this and you you have the result, uh, uh, which is then uh, I would say at the very least a very surprising result, uh, then uh, uh, you have to ask the question why this happened. Uh, let me, and, let me uh, just ask you a question here, really quickly, because. You, you said 1,250 Dalton peptides, so there's this mm -hmm. one peptide that you throw in there to make sure that it's like a nice no, no. control. It, it's part of the protein. Part of, so oh, you, was it part of so, all 20 proteins or is it 12, 1,250? Yeah, yeah, so when Dalton. you digest with gypsum, you are going to generate a 1,250 peptide. It's not the same peptide, but it's going to have the same molecular weight. Okay, and so it's Mark, sort of gives, go ahead, Mark. This is Mark. When you say it's, it's a 1,250 peptide, it doesn't, they, they, you have 20 peptides that are approximately the same way, right? You can actually separate them, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. So, so, uh, so. But uh, let me ask one last question. Sorry about this. This is we got this lag, and I, I talked about it a little bit before. But so, twelve hundred and fifty Daltons. What is a Dalton? It's ten to the minus twenty-seven kilos. It's the mass equal to one proton or a neutron, right? So, you're what an incredible instrument if it can detect, you know. These slight differences of a of you've got a, a a sample a peptide sample that peptide weighs uh, and uh, uh, 1250 Daltons and you're able to decipher between you know slight changes within a few Daltons that's just outstanding 10 to the 27 minus 27 kilos but that's what the so that's the instruments do and and yeah. uh, that's <laughs> sure let's uh, do it. But but also you could just take the open reading frame from a, from a, from the database, and ask uh, give me the twelve fifty peptide, and that's what we did uh, uh, to 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 select the proteins. So so uh, you can you can predict this also. So that's not a it's it, it's not a, in any way close to tour de force uh, to to do this. This is what you would expect to be able to do on a routine basis. Sure, it's like saying I'm going to travel to light speed. You know, <laughs> it's not hard. This is Mark. I'm just curious. So, so I, I don't know that much actually about exactly how this type of thing would be set up. But is it is it fair to say that you have these 20 proteins, you they fracture into lots of peptides, and you wanted to make sure that it, that 
at least one peptide from all the proteins was in kind of the same area so that you could kind of tune the instrument to the same uh, rough 1250 um, sort of region and, and see it? Is that is that what's going on? It's not exactly. So uh, we wanted to try to simulate a more complex uh, situation. Oh, so, uh, so, so uh, maybe uh, if you compare the first task to a walk in the park, the second one would be to sit down on, on a bench and then open your uh, bag with, with a sandwich and eat it. And, and uh, that's really the level. So, so uh, you could even you would you wouldn't necessarily need to run the mass spec to predict the 1250. So if you identify the protein, then you should be able to look at the reading frame and say, okay, that's the 1250 peptide uh, coming out from there. So it's not a it's it's not a, a humongous uh, uh, challenge to to do that. But uh, the 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 abysmal performance uh, uh, is 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 then very, how do you say, telling in, in that only one lab managed to report back on, 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 on these 20 uh, peptides. And you should remember that if you look on the paper, these are labs that have had agreed uh, before to be co-authors on the publication. So, so uh, you have to then assume that you take this seriously. Uh, because you are conducting a study, it's going to be published in the, uh, here in Nature Methods, which is a uh, is a kind of a is well, I should say it's, it's a high-profile uh, uh, journal, and uh, therefore you, you you're not going to just throw this and and, and uh, not bother about this. You you have to assume that people made an effort and tried to uh, try to uh, to complete this task. So, this is Mark, so if, if, if that's the case, why, why did it come out with such discrepancies? So this is now the interesting uh, uh, aspect. So what you call, uh, but before I get to that, uh, I also want to say then that uh, the, during the, the, uh, the test sample study, of course, uh, uh, the uh, uh, the first author of the paper, Alex Bell, who was uh, conducting this study, and also the only person who knew which lab was reporting in data, uh, uh, etc. He was the only person that actually could link the the, uh, the data to to the particular participants. Uh, uh, he. Uh, then uh, at various points uh, reported on the status of the uh, study and invariably the criticism was then that the test sample uh, had to be contaminated uh, and, and, and rubbish, right? So, so uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, talk, rumors, discussions, etc., trying to explain away the, the, the dismal, dismal outcome of this uh, study. So uh, what uh, we then decided to do was not to just to rely on the reporting of uh, each one of the participants, but we also requested that each participant would submit their raw data, the mass spectrometry data that had not been analyzed, the raw data, to submit that. And uh, then we could pool all the raw data and we could do something which is called a centralized analysis and then uh, see what did the mass spectrometer really show uh, uh, for, for each one of these participants. And in the majority of the cases, 
they had fantastic data. It 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 uh, it was absolutely no problem whatsoever. So they 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 failed miserably in connecting the dots between having the raw data uh, from the mass spectrometry uh, mass spectrometer to connecting that to the database and from there to the ad uh, identification of the protein. And that's where the majority <laughs> of everyone failed. So, so, so uh, don't. So this, this is Mark. I'm just curious when, when you're saying that the data was very good. The actual spectra, like for, they ran the machines, and the actual spectra from all the machines, they they looked at it, and the spectra were the similar. It was just the interpretation of the spectra that was different. Yes, the matching of the uh, data to database. That's where where it failed. So so uh, it 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 really showed that the that the mass spec technology as such is really, really good. Uh, uh, I mean, there, there was one or two participants that had some problems with the, with the sample, but overwhelmingly, it, it was really pristine data that came out of the mass spectrometers. And it didn't really matter so much. There has been discussions about having standard uh, operating procedures, et cetera, to standardize, et cetera, but people were not adhering to that. They were just doing it the way they thought would be the best way to do it. And they generated fantastic uh, uh, mass spec data. It was then uh, uh, using uh, the search engine and the database, and that's where everything crashed. So that was an uh, immensely valuable lesson. That was a, a very intuitive. Um, here's a spectra, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. So it, that was very, very intuitive to, to say, you know what? I bet mass spec is ready. I think it's just, I mean, when you, how did is this not a hypothesis driven experiment? This is, I mean, that, well, that's a huge it, finding, but how, how did you predict that? I mean, we, how did we you, didn't predict. We, we, this was borne out from the criticism, uh, uh, which uh, happened at conferences, that we must have sent out really rubbish samples. Uh, we must have uh, sent out samples that were, were contaminated with carotene and God knows everything, right? And this is why people had a problem then to, to, to analyze them. But by bringing in the raw data from the, each participant, we could actually see ourselves what had the participant observed in the, with their mass spec by analyzing their raw data. And we could prove that some labs introduced themselves, uh, uh, carotene, etc., which was a very common contamination in, in, uh, in, uh, in, in protein samples and, and, and so forth. Uh, we could also uh, uh, really accurately determine the amount of bacterial proteins which, which were there uh, be uh, capped up at 6% uh, uh, because each protein had been produced in bacteria. So they were 96% pure, uh, each, each one of the proteins. But it, we had no contamination from any other uh, source in this test sample. But the revelation that came, uh, the answer to why they had failed, that was really brought uh, out from necessity to take the raw data and analyze it because people were trying to explain away the uh, result of this test sample uh, by claiming that the test sample as such was rubbish. So, so, uh, so, uh, call it ser uh, serpentipity or, or uh, uh, just, <laughs> but we didn't predict this, uh, and, and, uh, but it was very satisfying because uh, 
it 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 uh, it really uh, for for us uh, showed and also for the community showed that mass spectrometry is uh, a very powerful technology. Uh, you just have to be very careful uh, in how you apply it and how you. Uh, 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 then try to to match the the uh, the spectra to 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 the database. But what, I'm curious about these database discrepancies. I mean, can you can you give a sense, like an intuitive sense, of how people can differ in their database lookups or why this would happen? I mean, so 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 in this case, in this test sample study, we provided a frozen database. For, for, so everyone was using the same database. They were free to 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 use the uh, the particular choice of search engine uh, and and so on. Uh, but uh, the uh, uh, the database was the same. Uh, of course, in 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 real life, you have a couple of different databases you can use for 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 uh, for your uh, uh, annotation. But uh, but in this case, everyone used the same. But it really highlighted a big problem because, uh, uh, and I can just give you one example. I mean, right now in, in, in most databases, although there is an enormous effort, uh, uh, and I recognize that, uh, to, to curate the databases, there are still multiple entries for, for, uh, for, uh, for uh, one particular protein, for instance. I mean, just take any protein, like transferrin receptor. You will have transferrin receptor, and you will have transferrin receptor-like protein, and so on, so on, so on. And you will have maybe 10, 20, uh, 50, 100 entries for, 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 for a particular protein. And they may differ one base or, 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 or more. But this doesn't help when you're doing mass spectrometry because you you really need to be able to identify the protein, meaning it, it should be transferrin receptor at the first level. And then uh, once you have made that identification, you then can go down to the detail on what, what isoform it is, what SNP it is, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, uh, right now that's not feasible and therefore, people have constructed software that collapses these long, what do you say, multiple entries uh, uh, into one. But that software and that's not fail-safe. Uh, so, so uh, uh, what happens if you really want to do it carefully is that you have to do manual curation of your data, and that is a very, very tedious process and, and uh, uh, can take months to 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 do. So, 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 uh, so this is so this is Mark. So you're saying that like on a first level. The discrepancies were there was ten of these, say, transferrin receptor type uh, entries in the database, and one person were, would report the first entry, another person would report the third entry, and so forth. Mm -hmm. it, it, that type of thing. But that's the type of thing where you you kind of could, after the fact, see what happened and kind of put them into register. Is is that mm -hmm. fair? Yeah, I, I think uh, there there wasn't that. There was that men. There was how should I phrase it? It wasn't major tweaks that needed to be done uh, to to get this into a a, a shape that uh, is is uh, how do you say something that we can live with. But uh, it was a necessary uh, uh, how do you say process because we could really pinpoint uh, what the what the real bottlenecks are in 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 the annotation. And as a consequence, uh, maybe not completely as a consequence of this, but that certainly I think it contributed a lot. Uh, now there there are protein-centric databases being construct constructed, 
uh, like the the, uh, the knowledge base of uh, Amos Bayrock, uh, for example, uh, uh, the the Swiss prop derivative, uh, which is uh, he calls the next prop. So there, there you really go in and you have one protein. And uh, uh, of course, there are many different forms of that protein, but it's it's one protein. And uh, therefore, I think with that type of structure, your ability to to uh, to hit the protein uh, uh, from your mass spec data is going to be uh, improved. Mm. Okay. Well, this is Mark. I mean, it just sounds. I mean, from what you're saying, it sounds like it, it doesn't. Even though it's upsetting in the sense that the labs didn't agree that well, it does sound. This sounds like a very fixable type of thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but, but it does. Uh, uh, it, it, it highlighted something which, and I think, uh, well, I think a lot of people in the proteomics uh, uh, could could draw a sigh of relief because we didn't know this. We didn't know this before. We thought either people are completely useless or, or uh, uh, they are making up data or, or whatever because it was totally all over the place. But now we could pinpoint it to, to, uh, to something which I think in retrospect seems uh, trivial. But it isn't. It isn't trivial because we need to fix this. Uh, and I think it's easy to fix. Yeah, well, one thing I'll just say, I mean, just in, in defense of the d databases, and obviously this is something I know a bit about, I, I do think it's very non-trivial to, to, to do that. Um, and, and, and actually, I, I think just because I suspect people would want to get a sense of this problem in a more simple way, I'll just say that the issue is that, you know, you have um, this concept of a protein, but as you were saying, it has many different um, potential alternative splices. It has many SNPs and many different individuals. And, it, you know, maybe people have studied many uh, various sequence variants of it or where it's uh, truncated and, and whatnot. And kind of collapsing all of these together, um, you know, it's actually a rather tricky thing. And, you know, picking out the thing that you will then call the canonical version of the protein. Um, you, you know, I, I, it's not a trivial thing. I, 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 I fully agree. Uh, but if you, I, my training before I went into biology is, is, is from engineering. And I look at this from an engineering perspective. And if you have 20,300 open reading frames that are predicted to encode proteins, you can predict the proteins from that. And uh, you can then also go in and identify the peptides that are what we call proteotypic. So this is a, a, a huge effort from uh, uh, Rudy Ebersold and, and uh, uh, also uh, other people in, in, uh, in, say, Apple, like Eric Dorch, etc. They have now big databases on peptides that uh, are prote prototypic. That means that a peptide, if a protein is there, it should generate this peptide. And uh, you then empirically also see whether or not this peptide is, is able to, 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 to ionize and fly in the mass spectrometer so that you can, you can uh, correlate that. So that database is, is, uh, is there and, and, and is growing. And uh, we can then with higher accuracy uh, really say that, okay, with this peptide, that means we see this protein. So, so of course, then you can go one step below that and say, okay, now I'm not just interested in identifying the 
protein, but I also want to see what particular isoform of the protein. And then you can go in and look for isoform specific peptides within that context. But it's all built around a uh, a gene centric or protein centric approach to where the, where is the, one protein having a lot of different uh, uh, variants, but it's one protein and it's it's called whatever, if it's transferrin receptor, it's called transferrin receptor, and it's not called Bob or, 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 or Bill, it's called transferrin receptor. And just that simple fix will, will make life so much easier for, for, for anyone who's trying to annotate uh, uh, their mass spec data. It seems like it would be a, a very good tool for discovery as well. If you could go with, you've got your known knowns, then your known unknowns, things that you predict are there based on the genome and combinations of all the, you know, post-translational modifications, you know, either a glycosylation, you know, sugar added or a lipid added, phosphorylation, which is a phosphate that gets out of the protein. So that you, those could be predicted to happen. So you got your known unknowns. But I guess at, at the question in the end is the unknown unknowns. <laughs> the unknown knowns. The unknowns unknowns. Sorry. So you got your known knowns, your known unknowns, and your unknown unknowns. <laughs> right, to quote uh, a famous uh, CEO... CEO, but this uh, is this is uh, uh, I mean uh, it's not going to be like we're doing a mass spectrometry analysis and then that's it. This is like any other uh, uh, discovery biology etc. Is is that we are going to discover more. We uh, uh, we're going to discover more isoforms and 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 so forth, and learn more and more. Sorry, Remark? I'm here. I'm here. Okay, there's some there's some sound coming in the uh, in the stream. Okay, so 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 we are gonna we are gonna improve our knowledge, and with uh, with by improving our knowledge, we also improve our ability to predict which peptide should be seen for a particular protein or isoform, and in that way uh, you can then go in, and that opens up another avenue, which is then to be able to do absolute quantitation uh, by uh, using reference peptides. Has the, uh, those 27 labs that were analyzing these test samples, have they come since 2009 now to unify their, their, their workflows uh, such that they can start working on that unification of, of methodologies such that could potentially be translated to clinic? Or is this just way too early? Uh, this is, uh, I, I hope everyone has, uh, as I say, uh, drawn from the uh, outcome of this, but it's not just the the, uh, the, uh, the labs per, per se, but the whole community and also the, uh, the community of bioinformatics and uh, databases that uh, have, have, have uh, seen that this is, this is something that uh, we really need to move towards to enable mass spectrometry-based proteomics to be more robust. And that's a prerequisite for, for, for even thinking about applying this in the clinic. So, so, uh, so uh, it, but, but there are serious efforts uh, uh, on, on their way to, to do that. So, so uh, uh, I, have, uh, yeah, I have no doubt that uh, in, in, in a couple of years, we're gonna be there. Uh, uh, so, so uh, because the fix is not that uh, uh, enormous. Well, this, this is this, I think this is ahead, an interesting thing to point out in the sense that, you know, I, I think one question one can ask is if it's, it's not that hard to do this, why hasn't it been done? 
And I, I do think it points to an interesting situation where I think it's easy to describe in a sense what to do. You know, this is this sort of simple idea of you have 10 versions of a part, you want to find a canonical part name for it. Um, but to do it right um, on a very large scale for many, many things is actually a very difficult undertaking. And I, th I think one reason that probably it hasn't been done properly is people haven't um, appreciated how difficult it is and probably haven't afforded the appropriate credit to the people trying to do it. You, you know what I mean? So that there's an appropriate incentive um, for people to tackle it. It's, it. I suspect it's one of these things where no one has really put effort into it because it didn't seem like it was yeah, sufficiently rewarding. Let me add to that, Mark. I think we're witnessing it. And this is the whole point of Futures in Biotech is to be at that frontier at least as witnesses to uh, some of the great transitions of science forward and how it affects technology, right? So we're we're witnessing it now. It is happening. These mass specs are out there. People are trying. They're they're coordinating. And this was a beautiful example of a coordinated effort to bring that technology to fruition. And so you know, sometimes so, so. We, we are at that frontier, and you you got to recognize, holy moly, we are at the frontier. How come nobody has done it? They're doing it, and we can see it happen. And that, I, I feel really fortunate to be able to discuss it with you guys. So, you so, so there is a little uh, snippet that I can uh, uh, maybe add to, to, to all this. So there has been uh, uh, commentaries written about this test sample. Uh, uh, and uh, in, in, uh, some, uh, in some cases, the conclusions have been made that uh, it's only... Uh, uh, highly qualified labs that are, are uh, able to do uh, good uh, mass spectrometer-based proteomics. I just want to say that that is no, we, we are not allowed to disclose the data linking them to the participants, but I can say as much that there is no correlation between whether or not you're a well-established lab or not in, 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 in uh, how the, uh, how the uh, uh, results came out. So, so uh, that's a that's a misconception that uh, can, can it's I actually. Ask, sorry, can I ask if, Pre, if Paul Predke's group got it right? Did Predke? I, I, <laughs> Did I, I, I'm not going to reveal any any names, <laughs> not whatsoever. All I can say, all I can say, is that the uh, the the lab that got uh, uh, the uh, uh, the more difficult task uh, done was not a very uh, known lab. So, so, uh, uh, it, so uh, my point is that there was no real correlation between being highly established or not, whether or not you performed well or not. And I think this is, again, points back to the, to the robustness of the mass spectrometry technique. Uh, 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 but the, uh, at that time, uh, point in time, the, the, uh, the weakness of the uh, linking the mass spectrometry to, to, uh, to the protein identification. And it's still a lingering problem, but we are dealing with it. There's a question uh, uh, in our chat room. Titus said, isn't a fast protein liquid chromatography cheaper to separate peptides rather than mass uh, spectroscopy or mass spectroscope? Um, it's part of it. Right, or yes. you use MS instead of um, um, sorry, not MS. Uh, uh, you use to separate the peptides before it enters. That separates yes. the FLC yes. separates the yes. peptides. 
yeah. into their so, constituents that you throw into the mass spec? Yes. So, so uh, uh, and, and different peptides, they have different uh, uh, binding uh, capacities to different matrices, and so they will enter the mass spec uh, uh, depending on your, your liquid chromatography setup uh, then at different times. And uh, if, you use, if you use the same column and the same settings, etc., you can then uh, do this in a very reproducible manner. And uh, the technology now is switching to using uh, high-pressure uh, uh, liquid chromatography uh, machines, uh, and you can then uh, get a much better, uh, you can use much longer columns, like a meter and a half, and then uh, uh, get very, very good separations between the peptides, and then you en enhance the ability to, to, to detect and identify the, uh, the peptides. So these are called UPLCs. Well, this, this has been um, a really amazing opportunity to have this discussion at this stage, right? And um, what I'm trying to do here, that we're approaching our five years of Futures in Biotech now. And if you go back and look at the list of shows we've done, we've done several series of shows in various fields. And we've just taken on proteomics uh, this year. But this is the beginning. And we're going to follow it over the next, uh, hopefully, next five more years. And um, maybe be able to witness uh, this paradigm-shifting uh, technology and how it affects uh, not only medicine but the human condition because we're, we're taking our ability to see the human anatomy to the next level, which is just so, so cool. I think it's really neat. It, it, it um, is cool, but at the same time, uh, uh, inject a bit of modesty. Uh, you're going to have this together with other uh, technologies, it, 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 it in no way replaces, it's not a standalone technology. You, want, no. you, you have enormous power in imaging techniques, uh, you have enormous power in genomics, in, in transcriptomics, in metabolomics, etc. Uh, uh, and, and this will be one facet uh, of, of uh, 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 being able to understand what's going on in the cell, in the tissue, in the organ, in the human body. Oh yeah, it's not going to replace. Not def definitely not going to replace. I mean, MRI is just absolutely fantastic, and <laughs> you know that's uh, organismal level, but and, and maybe some tissue level. But and microscopy is getting better and better with laser scanning microscopy, you know, or even some forms of tomography used in an electron microscope, transmission electron microscope. You can take a, a protein sample and tilt it back and forth and actually solve the the structure of the protein sometimes with a single protein. Um, but you know, but but the but what we uh, all need, uh, and, and uh, I guess I'm, I'm there uh, directing this to Mark, is that we all need uh, uh, the the, uh, the very needed support from the bioinformatics community, from the systems approaches that are, are being developed in, in systems biology and systems medicine, etc. And for all the people and all hard work uh, going on in trying to curate these, uh, these uh, databases. Um, so we should, <laughs> let's, we should, we should cover this again. We should do it, um, uh, perhaps, um, when would be a good time? Probably in about six months and, and see if, 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 how closer, how much closer we got to the, to the clinic. It'd be a fantastic, uh, uh opportunity. Um, so I, I'd, I'd like to thank our guests today. Um, were, were there any final thoughts? Uh, I think, I think we've, we've got it. I mean, there's a lot to digest here. 
And and I'm going to listen back again. <laughs> Mark, do you have any last questions? No, I had a great show. All right, <laughs> cool. So uh, thank you to our, our, our guest, Dr. Tommy Nielsen. He's a professor in the Department of Medicine at McGill University and Canada Research Chair in Proteomics and Systems Medicine. I'm really glad that you're moving this forward. Uh, you're going to certainly help us in our, in our old age when we uh, get diagnosed and you know, quality of life is improved. I'm uh, going to grow old uh, before that, perhaps, but uh, we'll see. We'll keep optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming on. And, uh, thank you for having me. A pleasure. The state, the state of the science. And I'd like to uh, thank you also, uh, send a thank you to our, our special guest host, Mark Gerstein. He's the Albert L. Williams Professor of Bioinformatics. Uh, biomedical Informatics, Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry, and Computer Science at Yale University. Thank you very much, Mark, for coming on. Your enthusiasm for science is just unbounded, and it's amazing to uh, participate in discussion with you. Thanks for uh, helping out here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, we're hopefully going to have you back on, and we're going to talk about your work uh, on possibly uh, June 24th. We'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, 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 awesome. We'll coordinate. Uh, yeah, you've got a lot of really neat stuff since your last episode. And uh, I mean, you know, Mark does some great stuff. He even goes into the genome and mines for our history and uh, our, our genetic history. So he does some pretty incredible stuff. And a lot of the technologies that in the area of bioinformatics have come from Mark's uh, work. And uh, so we'll talk about it in June. Um, I'd also like to thank Burke McQuinn for handling the audio and video boards and the recordings today. Thank you, Burke. Um, I'd also like to thank the team that make this possible at The Cottage, Leo Laporte, Lisa Kinsell, Frédéric Louis, Eileen Rivera, Tony Wang, Mike Taylor, John Salina, Jeff Stewart, Jason Howell, and, and Dick Bartolo, and, and the rest of the team in Petaluma, California. Lastly, I'd like to thank uh, Phil Peltier and Will Hall for the opening and closing themes. Um, I'd also like to send out two shout-outs. Um, Julia Wynn, she's a Harvard student. I'm pretty sure she's still Harvard student. She's uh, in, in her, I think, in her final year. We'll, we'll learn more. Uh, she teaches a summer class at MIT that was inspired by Futures in Biotech. Um, so she even calls the lecture series uh, Futures in Biotech. So um, we, I'm hoping to have her on as a guest host uh, to host uh, 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 an episode on synthetic biology, one of her main interests. Um, so, uh, Julia, send me a, an email so we can touch base and we'll... Uh, to let me know if you finished your classes um, and we can get started on uh, producing that show. Also, uh, shout out to Sharon Doring. She, uh, she's a novelist and she's working on a biotech thriller. Uh, I don't think it's quite out yet. And I just want to let you know that I haven't forgotten. I'm just a really slow reader. Um, so far, so good though. So uh, I'll send you my comments very, very soon. Uh, any comments or suggestions, you can reach me at mark, M-A-R-C, at twit.tv or on Twitter at, uh, at Mark Pelletier. Futures in Biotech, I'm Mark Pelletier.